Well, let me invite you to stand and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 42. So we have been 42 Sundays, if I counted right. So there's a little bit of a correspondence there to Isaiah 42. 42 Sundays in Isaiah, that's a fair piece, as we like to say in Texas. And you have a right to ask, why? Why such a long series in Isaiah? And first thing I'll tell you is there's a tremendous uh, emphasis in the New Testament on Isaiah. Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And so there's this emphasis. We've got, if we know Isaiah, uh, we will know the New Testament better. And of course, Jesus begins his earthly ministry, his earthly teaching ministry there in Luke chapter 4 with the scroll of Isaiah being handed to him. And so this emphasis in the New Testament, that's reason number one. Reason number two is really Isaiah tells us who God is, and we've talked about this high theology. And we need that theology that extols the greatness of who God is and his holiness. And so Isaiah tells us who God is. Isaiah also tells us who we are in showcasing our shortcomings, our sin. And we truly know, fourth reason here, we truly know God better, not just in his attributes, but seeing those attributes at work in a relationship that he has with sinners. And so four reasons then, we've spent such a long time and a big investment in Isaiah, the emphasis in the New Testament, who God is, who we are, and to know God better through relationship. And we come to Isaiah 42. This is the first of the servant songs. Four places in Isaiah where you get very specific predictions about who Jesus is. This is the first one in Isaiah 42. You have another one. There's four of them. You have another one in Isaiah 53, which we covered uh, for Easter, those are on the website if you want to check that out. And then Isaiah 49 and 50. So Isaiah 42, let's hear about this servant, Jesus Christ, who would come. And I'll read verses 1 through 9 this morning. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or Lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands. Wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a covenant. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare 
Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to this text, we pray, help us to catch a glimpse of how great you are, of how we are lacking, of how Christ intercedes for us in the huge gulf and gap between a holy God and sinners like us. Enlighten us today and inspire us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. A couple years ago, the refrigerator, our refrigerator was on the fritz, and this is a crisis in our household, by the way. And uh, there was a fan, some kind of fan that wasn't working, and, and so I called the repair guy out. And he comes out, and of course, I am going to watch him. I'm going to watch him because I'm going to become an expert on fixing this thing so that if it happens again, I, I can repair it. And I don't have to pay $300 to, to get it fixed. So he comes out and, you know, pulls the fridge out, kind of diagnoses it. And all he does to fix it, all he does is he basically swaps out a part. He's got the part on his truck, and he basically unplugs it inside the fridge with this little tab thing. He unplugs that, unscrews four screws, puts the new part in there, done. Thank you very much. Well, you know, when it happened again to us a couple years later, yours truly fixed it and saved a lot of money doing it. And I tell you that story because so often fixing something, repairing something, is really just swapping out parts. Have you noticed that? If, if you have a, a newer car, you pop the hood on the car, there's nothing to work on. They've sealed it up. They don't want you touching it. And it's the same thing with a lot of electronic devices. It's just easier to replace it. It's easier with manufacturing and the supply chain the way that it is to pop out a part rather than try to fix this little motor or fan that was given our refrigerator fits. And it's easier just to replace, just to start over. If you have ever hunted here in the hill country with your car, if you've ever hunted with your car, um, you know typically what happens, they they just... replace your car. They just total it. They just start over. Uh, Those deer really can do some damage. And so this idea of repair is something that is sometimes lost on us, that in point of fact, God will roll back the effects of the fall. There is not one square inch, Abraham Kuyper said, of this world that Jesus doesn't cry, mine. Jesus doesn't give up. In the restoration of creation, in the restoration of this world, in the repair of your very soul and my soul, it is a repair job par excellence. It is the ultimate repair and restoration. There is no giving up. As we read in the text, verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. He will fix it. He will repair it. Now, how does this happen? Of course, it happens through the gospel and the message of the gospel, because we don't want to assume anything here. The message of the gospel is that Jesus came to this earth to fix that which was broken. And what was broken was our relationship with God. 
Sin had come into the world through two historical people, Adam and Eve. And with that sin coming into the world, we inherited their sin nature. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot repair ourselves. So God sent Christ to satisfy his wrath on the cross, to pay the penalty we owed to God, to inherit, to have imputed to us Christ's righteousness so that our record is perfect before God. This is the ultimate repair. And it happens through the gospel. And here in Isaiah 42, what you're going to see is you're going to see the echoes and the preliminaries to Christ's coming, and we can appreciate God's repair job, so to speak, on our very souls through Isaiah 42. So where do we start? We're going to start in verses 1 through 4 with this uh, idea that God brings justice. Part of the repair is God has to fix that which is wrong in this world, and one of those things is injustice, and so what does God do? He brings justice. And we're told here in verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold. Now the servant is the answer to that which precedes this passage. If we look at the context, Isaiah 41, verse 29, what comes before this passage is a expose on idols, what people put their trust in. And here, Verse 1, the servant is in contrast to Isaiah 41, 29. Behold, they, the idols, are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Here comes the Savior in direct contrast to those idols. My servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, Isaiah 42, 1, in whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. So this is God the Father showing us the relationship in the Trinity, how God has brought his Son into the world. And what will he do? Look at the end of verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now the nations are the furthest off. And so what we're told here is that God will, through Christ, bring justice to the furthest extent to the nations, to the ones who don't belong, he will bring justice to them. Now, this justice, we typically think of judgment. We have more or less a truncated view of justice, but think of justice as a whole ecosystem, as it were, of God's rule and reign on the earth. His way of doing things brought to bear on how things are happening in this world. So that's very important to understand that. Justice is not just God judging, but it's bringing this whole way of doing things, his kingdom to bear on what's going on in the world as his corrective action to restore and to repair that which is broken in this world. And we see the style of bringing the justice. Look in verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. It's not flashy. Through the ordinary ministry of Jesus Christ, which is supernatural in its power, without being flashy, 
He will not cry aloud, lift up his voice, make it heard in the street. And there could be an allusion here uh, to Jesus uh, before Pilate, uh, certainly. So his, you know, we could ask, what is his style of bringing justice? Not flashy, ordinary. And it is a style that's full of mercy. Look at verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You've got to see this in light of how Israel was facing an invasion and going off into exile, and there was a threat to their very existence. They were discouraged. They were disappointed. They were worn down. Have you ever felt that way? A bruised reed. Maybe some of you feel a little bruised this morning, depending on what took place this week in your life. And the assurance here is that the servant comes in, Jesus Christ comes in, and he cares for the weak, the bruised, those who are discouraged, and he makes it his ministry to care for them. So a bruised reed, he's not going to just break it off. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Think when you blow out a candle and you have that little ember that sticks on the end of the, can, uh, on the, end of the wick and the smoke kind of goes up from it, filling your house full of smoke. I, burned, I blew out the candle, but this little ember, God will not quench that. And we see his mercy, his kindness, his sovereignty to protect his people. And then look at the end of verse 3. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now that's the second time we have told, been told that. He will bring forth justice. We see it at the end of verse 1. We see it at the end of verse 3. And part of the emphasis here is justice is not a concern for you unless you have been significantly wronged. Unless you're really the Subject of experiencing injustice, notice I didn't say victim, because victim, victimhood is so popular right now in our culture. But the idea here is if we've suffered injustice, we have one who will bring forth justice. We have one who will answer. And not only will he answer, look at verse 4, he won't grow faint or be discouraged. In other words, there's nothing this world can throw at Jesus to prevent, to stop, or to derail the fact that he's going to establish justice, God's rule and reign here on earth, till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And the coastlands, that's a way of talking about the edge of the map you know, right before you get to the monsters, is the coastlands, it's the farthest reaches. So we're learning that there is no place too far where the extent of God's justice won't reign or correct that which is wrong in this world. That's a source of our hope. We may or may not get justice in this world. We may or may not have things go our way, but ultimately... We can hope that God will, in point of fact, bring his justice. So there is a difference between our view of justice and God's view of justice. We need to know that. Now, uh, 
how do we apply this, this idea of justice and God's rule and as part of his repair to right the wrongs in this world and to correct that which is uh, wrong? How do we apply that? Well, when you see there's lots of calls for justice these days, you see that in society. You know, I might imagine I have a sign that says, of course, it would say justice for Alan. But you get, you get the uh, idea. We see these signs. We see people crying out for justice uh, in less serious uh, ways. You know, they might be holding signs in the street, justice for so-and-so. In less serious ways, parents or grandparents, you might hear from your kids in exactly this tone, that's not fair. That's a cry for justice, right? And one way you apply this is I want you to see that as really a sign of hope, really a sign of hope. Why is that a sign of hope? Because people are able to discern and differentiate right from wrong. You see, in a true post-postmodern world, there's no such thing as right and wrong. There's no such thing as justice. When people hold this sign up that says justice for so-and-so, this is a good entree, a good lead into communicating and talking about the gospel because the ultimate source of our justice, we're told here in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, is the servant who would come. So it is a sign. Take hope when you see someone carrying a sign, justice for so-and-so. You should have hope because they've suffered an injustice an injustice serious enough to where they know the difference between right and wrong. And that's a good thing in our society. So see that as hopeful, but as well, I think, when our, see it as an invitation to hope for more, to hope for more. Ultimate justice isn't found in this life. You and I know enough about the justice system and the way things work in this uh, world, in our country, we know ultimate justice is with God. There is a more satisfying, more fulfilling kind of justice coming than what we can have in this world. And so God brings the justice. He is in process of bringing his justice as part of the repair that he is affecting in this world. Well, where else do you see this repair happening? Not just God bringing justice, but you see God bringing salvation. And this is in verses 5 through 7 of our passage. And what, what you get in verse 5 is you get a reminder of who God is. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Verse 5 is, as it were, piling up titles and descriptions of who God is and that He is great. And what does He do with this greatness? Verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will take you by the hand and keep you. It's an assurance. For God's people that he will be there with them and protect them. When we read keep you, it's really God guarding his people. 
and he assures them all this power of a creator God, and he's concerned for the likes of us. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. He's called us to a certain kind of life to live obedient to him, and I will take you by the hand. You know, parents, what do you do? Or grandparents, you know, you come... You know, probably the most dangerous street in all of Bernie is the driveway of H-E-B or Walmart between the parking lot and, and the store. That's my hypothesis. But what do you do when you're crossing that little dangerous, probably the most dangerous thing you'll do all week? What do you do? You, you, you hold hands with your kids. And if you got a lot of kids or a lot of grandkids, you make that one that you're holding on to, hold on to the next one, and the next one, hold on to the next one. And you take them by the hand because you're going to protect them and go together. It is your presence there which guards and protects them. And God is saying, I'm like that. I take you by the hand. In your most worried and anxious moments, what does God do? Takes us by the hand and keeps us and look at this not only does he assure us with his presence and protection but look at verse six i will give you as a covenant for the people a light to the nations he not only gives us our his presence his protection but his promise the covenant promise that he has made a promise and he will keep it and he calls us to be a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. Remember how Jesus began his ministry with Isaiah 61. This points not only to Isaiah 61, but beyond that to Acts 16. Remember Paul and Silas freed from prison. But then as well, not just the physical fulfillment, but the spiritual fulfillment of God freeing people from sin the dungeon of sin and death. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. God is in the business of restoring liberty through his repair through the Son. And the proof of God's power that he can fix you, fix what's broken with you, fix what's broken with me, is through salvation, the salvation of the Son who calls us out of darkness into the light, out of the prison of sin and death, into the freedom and liberty of the Spirit. And this is a reminder to us we've got to talk about Jesus. We've got to evangelize. And evangelism is simply talking about Jesus talking about that gospel message. Sometimes you're going to be able to lay out the whole gospel message from creation to consummation, from Genesis to Revelation, but sometimes you're just going to have to interject a point. You know, when someone shrugs and says, well, people love who they love, and you go, yeah, I don't believe in that. God has something better for us. You know, and you just gently... Maybe you don't kick the anthill, you just gently kind of step on it. And you disturb what people have piled up and made in their life as a defense against 
the gospel. So we're going to have to extrovert. We're going to have to talk. And if you're not a talker, that's okay. But you're still called to risk offending people. Just a gentle step in the anthill. And then you kind of back up and there's a lot of disturbed activities going on. And we're called to that because God calls us to be a light to the nations. I mean, imagine this. God uses those whom he saves to commend salvation to others. Wow, what an incredible God we have. So we're talking about God's repair. How does he fix that which is broken in this universe, namely us? How does he do that? Well, he brings justice, his will, his way, his kingdom into the world. He brings salvation out of the darkness into the light. And then lastly here, verses 8 and 9, he brings the new. He brings the new. Verse 8 is again a statement of God's power that's similar to verse 5. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So sort of in the battle, and this goes back to chapter 41, verse 29, in the battle between God and idols, God wins every time. And we see in verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass. So the former things, this is an encouragement to us, those of us, who have messed up in our past life, or past day, or past week, or past hour, that through the power of the gospel, God brings new things. New things I now declare, God says. And this should remind us of Genesis chapter 1, where God spoke and it came into being, here in Isaiah, he is portrayed as still speaking, and he is speaking not creating the world, but creating a spiritual way for us to have healing through his declaration. And we're told at the end of verse 9, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God knows the end from the beginning. He's able to say, this is what's going to happen. And then through his providential power, he's able to carry it out fully. This is the power of God. And he uses this power to bring his justice, salvation, and to bring the new. God uses his power to beat back the effects of the fall and to bring renovation and repair to our life into this world that will consummate in Christ's return. This is what Isaiah 42 looks forward to, the work of the servant doing this. And there's an echo here of Revelation 21.5, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. God's great and grand renovation project through Christ is underway and has been happening and will one day finally be completed. I read a story. Have you had a have you had a renovation nightmare? You had one of those? Oh, we're just gonna, you know, new cabinets. You had a renovation nightmare. You might appreciate hearing this, because it didn't happen to you. 
read a story about a real estate investor bought one of these older homes in Philadelphia, one of these row homes, kind of an urban area that was being uh, renovated and revitalized there, and bought one of these row homes. Of course, they had it inspected. Of course, they had it inspected. And he gets the contractor out there uh, after the home closes, of course, and the contractor tears into the kitchen wall. I think it was on the east side of the house. Tears into the kitchen wall. He notices there's some major support structure missing. So he kind of goes down the line looking for how this east wall is holding itself up. And he can't find it. In fact, he finds out and he tells the new owner, there is no load-bearing wall on the east side of this house. I don't know how this house is still standing. And so, of course, the price tag of that renovation just went up as the contractor had to order steel and tie the steel into the foundation and do the foundation work and then uh, go back and frame the home correctly so it could be uh, load-bearing and complete that renovation project. You see, it's never as easy as you think it is, is it? No, because you get the home inspected, but they don't tear into the wall to check for basic components of a structure. And yet, God is able to do this great and grand renovation project. I have good news for you, and this goes for me too. You are not beyond repair. You are not beyond renovation. That the great servant that is talked about here is able to bring down the wall in your life and rebuild it again in a way that gives glory to God. You are not beyond repair. I am not beyond repair, if you're doubting that. I am not beyond repair. Even the difficult people in our life, even the ones who maybe we have a strained relationship or we might even say we're estranged from, can God help us with that? Yes. Not beyond His repair job. And so from this text, I hope you have tremendous hope and some insight. This passage was meant to give people hope then as they looked forward to the servant who would come. We have hope because he already came and we look back on him. He can truly fix it. This is God's great repair, and through the power of His Spirit and the Word, He tears down the walls in our life. And, you know, sometimes it's a dusty repair, sometimes it's painful, but we can endure because He loves us, and He takes us by the hand, and He keeps us, and He encourages us. And should the repair job be really involved. Verse 4, we take great hope. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. It isn't too much for our Savior to fix. Let's pray together. Lord, how we ask that you would give us tremendous hope that, yes, you can fix what is wrong and broken, 
not just out there in the world, but in here in the church and with us. And so we thank you for your standard of justice that you have brought. We thank you for the work of the Savior reconciling us to you. We thank you for your protection, provision, care, presence, promise, which all encourages us. And we thank you that you make all things new. And this is our moment here in worship to start anew and afresh here at the table. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.